church said. Amen. Back in the latter part of Revelation 11, John records what he witnesses in the heavenly scene. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Beginning in verse 15, again, Revelation 11, John says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. John says, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. You know, we've noted over the course of the last several weeks that following this particular scene, John takes an intermission from the flow of what's happening in the heavenly space. And he does this in order to use chapters 12, 13, and 14 to introduce seven additional important characters who play central roles during these seven years of great tribulation. Now that John has finished this particular task, And in doing so, kind of rounded out our understanding or given us a more complete picture of events happening during this tribulation. As we get to chapter 15, John is now ready to return to the action left off at the end of chapter 11. So we dive into the text, verse 1 of chapter 15. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues For in them the wrath of God is complete. Regarding the judgments of God, we've already seen seven seal judgments, followed by seven trumpet judgments. Now that we're approaching the very end of the tribulation, John here observes seven angels step forward, each of them possessing, we're told, the seven last plagues. John adds that in these particular seven judgments, Quote, the wrath of God would be complete or finished. Now, in the original Greek New Testament, you'll find two different words that are translated into English as wrath. Scripturally speaking, the overwhelming majority of the time, the word for wrath is orgy, which described kind of an anger that gradually rose, kind of from a natural disposition. That being said, The word for wrath that John uses here, when he mentions here the wrath of God in verse 1, is thymos, totally different word. And it's this word that it doesn't describe an anger naturally rising from a disposition, but it notes an inflamed anger that kind of flashes forth. In fact, this particular word for wrath is only used 11 times in all of the Bible, 10 of which we find here in the book of Revelation. While one word presents a simmering anger, the wrath we have here opening us in chapter 15, it was intentional and it was explosive. Now up until this point in time, in God's judgments of the world, again with the seals and the trumpets, we have seen incredible restraint on the part of God. With the first round of seal judgments, God would only judge, if you recall, a fourth part. Then with the second round of trumpet judgments, his wrath would be measured by a third. And yet what's interesting about this final set of bold judgments is that any and all restraints are completely removed. With these final seven plagues, God's wrath will be poured out on an unbelieving world In full measure. And we should consider, before we even move further into the text, what necessitated this particular change from God. The change in approach. First, you know, in spite of God's mercy, 
manifesting over and over again and the restraining of the judgments coupled with the reality that God has kind of graciously gone above and beyond to provide the world multiple witnesses during this season to testify of the truth. The 144,000, the two witnesses. As we noted last Sunday, we've got angels flying around the heavenly space, visible for the world to see, and all nations, uh, tongues, tribes, speaking out the everlasting gospel. I mean, there has been an abundance in the midst of judgment, an abundance of revelation. God pleading with the world. So he's been gracious and testifying. He's been merciful and restraining. But what have we seen in response to these things? Over and over and over again, repeatedly, we've seen mankind refuse to repent. We've seen that mentioned in the text. God's witness, the restraining of his wrath. Man, he double downs on his wickedness. He becomes more determined in his rebellion. You know why God is incredibly patient. The Bible says that he is also a jealous God. That there is a point in time when his patience runs out. Secondly, if this weren't reason enough, in addition to man's stubbornness, unrepentant man has also, he's resisted God's witness, He's, they've doubled down in their rebellion, but they're also embarking on this systematic pursuit and persecution of the saints of God. God gives witnesses, they say, we're not interested. God restrains his judgment, they're not thankful. In response to all of that, they're also persecuting God's people. By this point in time, seeing God, uh, the, the wickedness of man, his unwillingness to repent, and now the fact he's lashing out at the saints, the anger of God, from this temple in heaven, it hits a flashpoint. And it manifests in these final seven plagues. Think of it as a threshold has finally been crossed and all restraints are removed. Verse 2, John says, I saw something like a sea of glass. Again, he's using figurative language, something like a sea of glass, mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over his, the number of his name, standing on the seat of glass, they have harps of God. Now, in this vision, John is seeing here, witnessing a vast multitude of the saints who have been martyred for their faith during the tribulational period. And these martyred saints, again, having overcome the beast and his mark and his image, they're standing, John sees, in heaven. And what are they doing? Well, first, they have these harps, the harps of God. So they're all equipped with fenders and martial amps. I mean, they're ready. And to accompany their music, John says that they sing this song, the song of Moses, the servant of God. They sing the song of the Lamb. They sing, and, and we have a quotation of this song, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations have come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Man, if only we had been given the sheet music to accompany the song, right? It's interesting that what we have here is a song that's being sung before the throne of God in heaven, and it has two titles. John calls it the Song of Moses, but then he also gives another writing credit. He says it's also the Song of the Lamb. Like, how cool that we have here a song authored by Moses in collaboration with Jesus to be sung specifically by the tribulational saints. It's amazing that think about this group singing the song. Like these are people that have endured incredible hardship. Many of them have been slaughtered for their faith, beheaded. These people have, have gone through the ringer. And yet the moment they entered heaven, the moment they stood before the throne of God, the moment, that moment, everything made sense. Like you don't get any type of, of bitterness or, 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 or harboring of doubt. Like there's, there's this full exaltation they're not upset with what they had to endure instead we see here in this song that they celebrated the works of God 
you know, the things that God does. And they celebrated the ways of God. The way he does his works. It's not just that he does things. They celebrated the way he does it. They exalted his name for his holiness, his righteousness, his judgments. After these things, verse 5, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having on their chest that they were girded with golden bands. And the, the, the imagery we're given are these angelic beings dressed in a lot of the, the priestly attire we, we would have seen back in ancient Israel. Now, knowing that God is about to unleash His final judgments onto this evil world through these seven plagues, it's significant. It's worth noting that the initiating directives here They come from no other location but heaven and no other location in heaven but the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. While the restraints of God's wrath have been removed, you need to understand that the application of His wrath, as brutal as it will be, as destructive and devastating as we will see, the application of God's wrath will be pursuant to the standards of His law. And his commandments. From the very beginning, God said the wages of sin is death. And we will see just the application of God's righteous standards being carried forth. While these bold judgments will be horrifying, they will be, and always keep in mind, they're justified. Verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures, and these were the cherubim, these trippy-looking angels we were introduced to back in chapter 4. One of the four living creatures gave then to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And John is he's doing his best to describe what he's seeing and he's using imagery based rooted in the Old Testament. You know, in the earthly tabernacle and later the temple, golden bowls were the specific vessels that were used by the priests to collect the blood of the sacrifice. And this was important blood. It was blood shed for the remission of sin. And it was by this particular blood, the collecting of this blood, that they would go around the priest within the temple purifying all of the artifacts. Things were cleansed, purified by the blood of the sacrifice. To collect the blood, it was golden bowls. So John is kind of building on all this priestly Old Testament imagery. And the idea is that God is about to purify the world. From the taint of sin. Like the the end of this process, yes, it will be bloody, but the end of it will be glorious. It'll be full restoration. It'll be the world will be purified, made new, made fresh. Verse 8. Then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. In setting the scene for what's about to take place on the earth, the idea here of the temple now being filled or consumed with the smoke from the glory of God, in a similar way as, as both with the, uh, the consecration of the tabernacle in Leviticus, and then, and then again when Solomon had completed his temple, we're told that the Shekinah glory of God, the smoke filled. It, it was a, a visual expression of kind of something spiritual and supernatural that was taking place. John sees this temple in heaven and the smoke of the glory of God fills it. The idea here is that no one is able to enter because of the presence of God. And no one's allowed to enter until, John says, the seven plagues are completed. And this is all to illustrate that this final work, this final thing, the final act of God's plan was something that only he could accomplish. He fills the temple. He shuts the doors. No one can enter until this is done. There's, there's no delay. It can't be stopped. The final domino has dropped. So we transition to chapter 16, verse 1. John says, Then I heard a loud, and it, literally in the Greek, this was, this was a great voice. From the temple, 
saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, again, because the previous chapter has closed with the presence of God filling the temple in heaven so that no one could enter, we, we know by default, God being left alone in the temple, that the voice coming has to be the, the voice of God, this great voice instructing these seven angels to pour out these seven bowls of judgment on the earth is God the Father. God is the one initiating it. Now regarding the completion of His judgments, understand God will take full responsibility for what happens. He's the one calling the shots. I read one commentator noted why God would, would close the doors of the temple. Like, Why would God revert back into a place where He would be alone while this was happening? You can't say with any certainty. I thought it was an interesting idea is that God was weeping. That God God restrained himself. He pulled back. Because this is not what God wanted for, for humanity when he created. This was not God's plan. God takes no delight in the judgment of the wicked even though sometimes the judgment of the wicked is necessary. He takes responsibility. He's the one calling the shots. You know, for a measure of context as to the brutal nature of these bold judgments. And why chronologically, while we're not really given a a pure indication in the text where they fall in this seven-year period of time, they have to be at the end. And the reason that they have to be at the end is really what Jesus said about this period of time recorded for us in Matthew 24. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus said, for there will be, following the abomination of desolation, he says, there will be great tribulation, Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And keep in mind, there have been some pretty drastic judgments of of the world globally with a flood. There have been some pretty drastic judgments of of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and other illustrations we have within Scripture. But Jesus says that what happens here has never happened before. And then he adds that unless the days were shortened, no flesh would have been saved. Nothing would, be, would, would have been able to survive. Let's, with that in context, let's, let's look at these judgments. Verse 2. So the first, and again this would be the first angel, he went again by the instruction of God and poured out his bowl upon the earth, which implies that this will be a global judgment. Now what resulted? John says, in a foul and loathsome sore, came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now, one of the things that you'll come to notice in this morning's study about the bold judgments in particular is that while the results of each of these judgments have undoubtedly a very clear and literal understanding, they are designed, each of the judgments, to some extent, to be illustrative of man's internal spiritual condition. God is not just in a practical sense, a literal sense, judging man, but he's judging man in such a way that he's actually trying to highlight something about man within each judgment. Like, for example, take this first bold judgment. John says that a foul and loathsome sore came upon anyone who had taken the mark of the beast. Literally, the bodies of the people who had taken the mark end up being covered with a foul. In in the Greek, it's a running an oozing sore that John describes as being loathsome or extremely painful. Now, some commentators speculate that because the sore only afflicts those with the mark of the beast, it's likely the mark is the cause of this particular skin malady. But again, I don't think that that's necessary. It's necessary to gin up a natural or medical explanation for something that is clearly divine in regards to its judgment. You know, illustratively, again, looking at the spiritual uh, message that God is articulating, with the first bowl, like God here, He is allowing the outward man to literally practically reflect His inward condition, being foul, loathsome. Like the evil people who had taken the mark. And again, their, their fates are sealed. They're, they're damned to hell. These people were rotten to the core. Like spiritually, their hearts were like a festering, ulcerated lesion. 
It was foul. It smelled. It reeked. It was grotesque. It should be pointed out, maybe a, a bit of a subtle, redemptive aspect to this particular judgment. Like, let's say here you are at this point in the Great Tribulation, and you have, you have somehow avoided being placed into that, that grand decision. You've been on the run. You know, you'll, you, at some point, you're going to have to take the mark of the beast and be damned forever because this angel's been telling you this. Or you'll resist the mark, accept Jesus, but probably be beheaded in the process. You know this is coming. You can imagine everyone who's already gotten the mark breaking out in these loathsome, foul sores might be kind of a good persuading argument for not taking it. You know, like, like God is letting the final few that might be out there, like, this is what happens. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Again, maybe just a, a little bit of grace in the midst of great judgment. Verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Back in Revelation 8, John records that a third of the sea became blood as a consequence of the second trumpet judgment. Now with this second bowl judgment, John tells us that the rest of the sea became the blood as of a dead man. So this is blood, so that every living creature in the sea perished or died. You know, aside from just the pure ecological disaster that, that such a thing happening would, 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 I mean, again, nothing would survive if the days weren't shorted. Like imagine just the unbearable stench the unescapable stench of rotting sea life. I mean, it would have been unbearable. You know, in turning the sea to blood, what is God doing? I think he's highlighting, to an extent, the bloody scope of man's reign on this earth. Like, man has always had blood on his hands, hasn't he? Like, from the very first family, we see one son rise up against another, one brother against another, and strike him down in cold blood. And since that point moving forward, through wars and conflicts, brother against brother, man has had a bloody reign on this earth. So here God illustrates it. He turns the sea. Again, no restraint any longer. All of the sea becomes blood. Verse 4, Then a third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now, regarding this third bowl, you're going to want to make sure, if you're alive at this point, to have plenty of aquafina stored up. Because all of the drinking water turns to blood as well. There is no more drinking water on the earth. Start. Destructive. Just imagine, right? You know, in John chapter 4, yeah, it didn't have to be this way, right? Back in John 4, Jesus had promised to this woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. He had promised her what? Living water. Jesus promised the world living water that you could drink and consume that would well up within your soul a spring, spring up a well and make me whole. Everlasting life from this living water. But by this point in time, man has rejected that offer. So if you're going to reject living water, you're not going to drink of the, the, the water that I give? Okay. Now Jesus gives them only a dead, lifeless, bloody water to drink. One that leads to everlasting death. You see how there's kind of a spiritual uh, articulation within each of these judgments. Verse 5, Then I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they, and he's speaking of mankind, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, so you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Then I heard another again angel from the altar, saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Pertaining to just the scope, the implications of the second and third bold judgment, John, he says that he, he witnesses, he hears these two angels kind of step forward. 
And what, what do they do? They, they testify that as devastating as these things were, they were absolutely and completely justified. They were totally warranted. God's judgments were not only, they say, righteous, but they add that they were true. This is what man deserved. In turning the waters of the earth to blood, God was giving those who had shed the blood of the saints, literally, their just due. Verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him. That's a little confusing. The word him there, the pronoun, it could better be translated as it. The reference here is the sun. So fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to the sun to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. With the fourth bowl of God's wrath, the earth, <laughs> the earth begins to roast as temperatures soar. As a result, John tells us that men are scorched with fire and with a great heat emanating from the sun. You know, by this point in our history, where I don't care wherever you fall politically right now, but at some point it will be true that global warming will be a very real and inescapable problem. Without a solution, by the way. Ironically, at this point in time, no one experiencing these things will make the claim that the warming was man-made. In fact, everyone will know that this was God-made climate change. John says, in spite of even knowing that this was the judgment of God, what are we told? The people of the earth blasphemed the name of God and didn't repent. Like, please understand, kind of more from a much larger application of our text, the experience of divine judgment, or, or even the, the knowledge that God is behind your present experiences. Please understand, that is not enough alone. It doesn't have power in and of itself to change a person's heart. Like you can know that you're experiencing God's judgment for something you've done. You can even know or have the knowledge that what you're presently experiencing is God trying to teach you something. The knowledge enough doesn't change your heart. That's not what changes a heart. In truth, as we saw with Pharaoh in Egypt of old, like the unwillingness to repent all it does is hardens one's heart in their rebellion and resistance. Pharaoh knew that the plagues of Egypt were divine, but he hardened. Never forget, in your own life, and this is, this is likely a, a good parenting tip on the side, like the only thing that has the power to change a person's heart, to transform them, what leads a person to repentance is not the judgment of God or the knowledge of judgment. It is the love and grace of God. That it is the grace of God that leads a man to repentance. Verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven Literally, they railed against the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. You know, with this fifth bowl, John describes darkness, engulfing the throne and the kingdom of the beast. Right from the jump, this tells us that this particular judgment is not global in scope, but regionally specific to the area that's controlled by the Antichrist. And it's obvious that there is something particular, something strange, something odd about this darkness. This was a darkness that was physically afflicting. It was darkness, but it, it affected you. Like it was the type of darkness that could be sensed and felt, and it was tormenting. So tormenting that John says it was painful. So painful. 
that in response, men nod on their tongues. You know, in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus made an interesting accusation of the fallen world. He said, quote, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. You can understand at this point in time why God would, would afflict with such a judgment, darkness. It's as though God here is just giving man what he wanted. You want darkness? Here you go. So you have this great heat caused by the fourth bowl coupled with now this gnawing darkness. That sounds familiar to, to anything else? In fact, these are two very particular descriptions of hell. It's as though at this point in time, God is just giving humanity a foretaste of his eternal destiny. Eternal fire, and heat, and darkness. And in response to these things, what happens? It's sad, but telling. Man grows more and more defiant, doesn't he? In fact, you should note that this is the last time in the book of Revelation that we will have recorded that they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores and did not repent. Like what this tells us is the end, the end is nigh. Verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, which we know to be Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and, and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And with this sixth bowl, the stage is being set, John tells us, for the, the last battle of the great day of God Almighty. This battle is commonly known biblically but also just uh, culturally as the battle of Armageddon the final apocalypse and in kind of a bizarre scene and let's be let's be real it's strange John says that to prepare for this great battle what, what happens he sees these three unclean spirits like frogs and they come out of Satan, one comes out of Satan, one comes out of the Antichrist, one comes out of the false prophet. Now, now utilizing such imagery uh, to describe it a spiritual thing um, is, not, is not, well, really new. Not just to Scripture, but even to like the dark side. Like The Holy Spirit in the Bible is presented also with kind of an animalistic terminology. He's described as being what? A dove. And we have this contrast, the Spirit, like the dove of the Spirit, but now we get the frogs. Like the idea here is that these spirits, they're grotesque. We know it's illustrative, figurative language, because John defines what the spirits are. If you look at the text, he says that they're the spirits of demons. And they're given a very particular mission. These spirits are charged with going out and gathering, drawing the nations of the earth together for one final conflict. I hope you know that today, Demons are very much involved to an extent in geopolitical affairs. Like there are forces, evil, behind the nations. And at this point, they will rear their ugly head. They will draw humanity to one final conflict. Like to aid in that process, John also notes how the Euphrates River is dried up. Which you can, you can see as being a byproduct of this great heat and everything being turned to blood. What makes it significant is that the riverbed provides an easy access point or a way for the kings of the east to e easily make it um, into Mesopotamia, into the area of Israel. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they, the spirits, gathered them, again the nations, together to a place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. 
for starters, I, I need to point out that contextually, verse 15 doesn't fit within the flow of the narrative in any way. Like John's in the middle of, of, of describing these three unclean demon spirits that are like frogs gathered to bring the nations to the battle of Armageddon when then out of nowhere in the flow of the text you get this voice that kind of breaks the narrative jumps into the text and you get this declaration behold I am coming as a thief it's odd to say the least just within the the structure of how it's presented now in order to understand who is speaking here again behold I am coming So who's speaking? And also to address to whom the exhortation to watch is being given. We need to first ask if maybe we've encountered this type of a statement elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And also if if a statement or the imagery of coming like a thief is used elsewhere in the Bible. And that's all foreshadowing because it's yes and yes. Back in Revelation 3, Jesus writing to the church of Sardis. He said, he said, quote, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain. Then Jesus says, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You know, years before this, Jesus writing to the church of Sardis, at the end of his teaching on the end times, again, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus encouraged his followers, his disciples, to, quote, watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And then Jesus added, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, Jesus says, you be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And with these two passages in mind, I think it's safe to say that the voice here in verse 15, the voice declaring, behold, I am coming as a thief, I think we can conclude, safely say, it's Jesus. So this is Jesus interjecting into the text. And the idea of his coming, I mean, that's really not a new thing. It's central to the book of Revelation. Now, with Jesus, the one making the declaration, the next question, like, we need to identify the audience. Like, who is Jesus saying this to? Like, to identify the audience, the audience he's instructing to be watchful, you also now need to determine what coming Jesus plans to occur like a thief. So we know it's Jesus interjecting into the text, behold, I am coming quickly as a thief. Well, what coming is like a thief? That's the next question to determine the audience. Now, there are many scholars who believe that Jesus is speaking here to the tribulational saints who somehow managed to survive to the end, saying that the second coming will happen like a thief. That's the reference. I have a problem with this. Really twofold. First, the second coming of Jesus will not be like a thief in any way. In fact, if, if the second coming of Jesus was like a thief, Jesus would be a terrible thief. Like according to John's account of the second coming of Jesus, recorded in Revelation 19, John tells us that there's nothing hidden about it at all. There's nothing uh, covert. It's very out in the open. Heaven opens. Jesus comes riding down on a white stallion. Like the world sees it. The world knows it's happening. In fact, prophetically, you know the day. When Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, It can't be his second coming because using the prophecies of Daniel, you can pinpoint the day and the hour, not only based upon the Antichrist signing of a false peace that initiates seven years, the final week of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, but but you also get into the fact that from the, the abomination of desolation, this event that happens when the Antichrist enters the temple, declares himself to be God. At that moment, 1,260 days, what happens? Jesus comes back to earth. The second coming. Again, if a thief gave you the specific day he was coming, like we would have no Home Alone franchise. Like it wouldn't work. So it can't be the second coming because he doesn't come as a thief. The other problem I have with the position 
is what would practically result. Again, because Jesus is saying, watch. So, okay. Well, what would result if the, event, if the event in question, the second coming, and then you failed to watch? What makes this application even relevant? Like Jesus says, again, look at the text. He says, blessed is he who watches. So there's a blessing. And who keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Like the idea here is that there is a tangible blessing for the person who stays attentive and watchful and is prepared. In contrast, a failure to do those things would result in a notable consequence. Something would happen, you'd be cut off guard, you'd be naked. And thus it would result in shame. And it's very difficult to figure out any type of relevant application of those two things for a believer witnessing the second coming. Like instead, the more likely coming that Jesus is referencing, not just here, but in the Olivet Discourse, the coming that's like a thief, again, not being the second coming of Jesus, but it being the rapture. Like that, that makes more sense why Jesus is telling the audience to be watchful, to be ready, to be prepared. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and of the day. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And here's why. For God did not appoint us to wrath. What are we in the midst of studying? Wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, all of these things should be comfort. Comfort one another. Edify one another, just as you are doing. You know, in contrast, like in the context, excuse me, of John recording, you know, for the church, he's, he's recording this battle scene. He's talking about, you know, again, he's writing to churches. He's writing to Christians. The book of Revelations for us, we're in this, this you know, ecclesia. He's writing to us in the midst of telling us about the nations being gathered together and this final battle of Armageddon. Jesus, as, as John is writing, he just can't help himself. He jumps into the text and he interrupts with what? An exhortation. Christians, my bride, don't worry. I'm coming. You won't face this. You'll be on the other side of eternity. You'll be coming with me. It's as though Jesus just wants to remind us we won't be here for this. Verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and with a loud voice, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. You know, as Jesus completed his mission of taking upon himself the sins of the world in order to provide you and me a way of salvation, in John 19, verse 30, we're told that when Jesus had received the sour wine so he could say something, he declared to telestai, literally, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What makes this verse, Revelation 16, verse 17, to me so fascinating is we have in a lot of ways God the Father now uttering a very similar refrain, don't we? With this final bowl being poured out, the seventh, marking the completion of His wrath on a sinful and Christ-rejecting world, the Father now declares. Jesus said, to tell us that it is finished. Now the Father says, from heaven, it is done. The plan that had been set into motion in the Garden of Eden was finished. Judgment was complete. The kingdom could come. In fact, I think it's God crying out, it is done, that was the indicator for Jesus. Son, it's your turn. You're on. Go. Heaven opens and Jesus comes riding. Verse 18. Because of this bowl, there were noises and thunders and lightnings. There was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, what resulted from the quake, the great city, and that would be Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. The cities, and again that's plural, of the nations, also plural, fell. 
So John here is describing, with the seventh bowl, complete and total global destruction. He adds, And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now, there's a lot loaded into that. We're going to get to Babylon, who Babylon is, the judgment of Babylon. We'll get into all of that in chapter 17 and 18. So we'll leave that. John also notes, because of this bowl, the earthquake, every island fled away. The, the, the Greek phrase fled away as they sank. So don't buy beachfront in Hawaii. Not a good move. And the mountains were not found. So obviously, we're having some, some significant tectonic shifts occurring in the earth's crust. We also note, John says, that great hail fell from heaven upon men. Maybe that's an evidence of, of the pole shifting. There's a lot of, of ways this could happen. Again, it's just judgment. So great hell fell from heaven upon men. John says that each hailstone was the weight of a talent, about the weight of a talent, which is roughly 100 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, Paul, he mentions that even presently, the whole of creation is groaning for the return of her maker. Like the earth, the forest, the seas, the sky, the st- like all of God's creation is longing for the return of its maker. To reverse the scourge caused by us in our sin. Now following the seventh and last bold judgment and the declaration of the Father that His judgments are now done. Again, heaven opens. Jesus makes His return. Biblically, He makes quick work of the armies of the Antichrist who oppose Him. A slaughter of the wicked ensues. But it's almost as though what's being described here is that sensing, the earth sensing that the Creator is about to arrive and restore What's been ravaged by by sinful men, the globe itself quakes with anticipation. The earth shakes. Jesus is coming. There's an excitement of the earth, knowing what would result. As part of this final judgment, where the basic topography of the planet is so radically altered that every island and mountain disappear, and the cities of the world are reduced to rubble, John says that there was great hail, again weighing 100 pounds, falling upon men from heaven. I don't want to get morbid, but you know, we we talked about last week the judgment being described as as grapes ripened, thrown into the the vine press, you know, the, the wine press, being crushed. Like, imagine, like, what that would look like with 100 pound hailstones falling out of heaven. Like, you get hit with one of those, you would be squished right where you were standing like a grape, overripened. Like, the visualization. Like, where could you hide to escape a hundred pound hailstones? Again, looking at this last plague through a spiritual lens, there is something very profound about this being the final manifestation of God's wrath towards an unbelieving world. And don't forget where the wrath originates from. It's coming from the temple of the tabernacle of heaven. What is being carried forth is a manifestation consistent with the law of God. The righteous law of God and His commandments. You know, according to the law, blaspheme against God. It was a crime that was punishable by death. And you know how that that execution was carried forth? Through stoning. Through stoning. The last plague. There was a day when Jesus, when Jesus could have rightly stoned a woman who had been caught in adultery. Remember the story? A woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. They throw her on the ground. And they quote the law. She's guilty. And what should result? Well, the law says she should be stoned to death. 
And famously, Jesus, his last retort was, okay, let he without sin cast the first stone. And everyone dropped their rocks and they walked away. You know, the only one present that day that had the right, the justifiable right to stone her to death, the only one without sin was Jesus. Jesus would have been completely justified in stoning her to death according to the law. But he didn't. Did he? No, instead he forgave her. And then encouraged her to go, saying your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Forgiveness, grace, and mercy. You know what's really sobering to think about? Is that the day is on the horizon when the forgiveness of God can no longer be extended to man. That there is a day when justice is warranted. On the day that we read of, God, who is without sin, will righteously stone to death an evil world. You know, as you process the finality, the savage finality of the wrath of God, like you need to remember, and again, this is all heavy, but please remember that leading up to this day, the Lord God of heaven did absolutely every single thing he could possibly have done to provide everyone present on that day a way to escape that judgment. It didn't have to be that way. They didn't have to be there. He went to such extent that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross. He, at one point, took upon himself the wrath of God for sin so that we didn't have to experience it ourselves. Everyone standing there that day being stoned for blasphemy is there because they chose to be there and they rejected Jesus entirely. There's not a soul present who can claim ignorance. They were defiant to the end. Again, the scriptures attest that God bent over backwards to give humanity Warning after warning, witness after witness. In fact, he restrained his own judgments twice, hoping that man would repent and be saved. Sadly, not only will a fallen man reject God's salvation in Jesus, but this man, men, triples down on their wickedness. They lash out against the saints. They blaspheme the name that is above all. And as such, the day will come that the judgment man will receive, every man deserved. As the angel said and testified, it is their just due. So Father, Lord, with the heaviness of that, let that just speak to us.